Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. So, my, you know, as you know, this is Perp Web 70. Uh, my co-host today, or we're going to go to the widescreen, yeah, there you go, is Ramsha Azmat. Ramsha, welcome to your first time on the show with me. Thank I can't you. thank you enough for being here. Uh, Ramsha received her bachelor's in general studies with a minors in both biology and chemistry and health sciences from Texas Tech University in 2018. She recently graduated with a master's degree in cardiovascular perfusion technology from Rush University uh, and her graduation years, actually 2021. Um, she received extensive training from Advocate Christ Hospital in Chicago Theta Care, is that how you say it? Theta? Theta Care. Theta? Theta Care. Theta Care Regional Medical Center in Appleton, Wisconsin, and Ascension at St. John Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. The training she received gave her expert experience in the field of perfusion and grew her love for this field. Ramsha also enjoys outdoor activities like biking, hiking, and has a great passion for traveling. She also loves shopping, dancing, and painting as hobbies. Now, I got to see, I need, will you paint me? Do you do portraits? No. No, you don't do portraits. I'm not that good. <laughs> no, come on now. Um, you're really good at everything you do. So let me tell you a quick story about Ramsha, if I may. So that's her bio, but a little something about her. Ramsha called me kind of out of the blue, mm -hmm. if I remember right, and she wanted to shadow. And it, it was really a different, I don't know what was going on or what the reason was. We were busy, I'm not sure, but you know, I, it's not that I deliberately put you off, but I was busy and I was trying to get to it. And of course, it's a process to get anybody into any of our hospitals anymore. But you were so persistent. Ramsha would call me. Can I, can I get in? Send me a text. Can I get in? Send me an email. Can I get in? And over and over and over. And finally, I got her in and she observed a couple of cases, mm -hmm. right? And the next thing you know, I'm getting a message from Ramsha that she's graduating from perfusion school. So I knew you just out of the, just because of somebody who had a real interest. So I think your passion, your love for what you're doing is not surprising because you had it before you ever went to the program. So congratulations on that. I'm Thank very you. proud of you for that. Thank you. you also just recently took your boards, mm -hmm. both the written and the written practical, I yes. guess they call it now. So tell us about that. I just got done taking my boards for science and the clinical portion. So I'm just waiting on my um, scores. Hopefully, knock on wood, I pass. <laughs> oh, well, yes, knock, knock, knock on wood. <laughs> well, I, I have found that most people that ha are worried mm -hmm. about whether they passed um, actually pass really yeah. well. The ones that are not the least bit concerned, oh yeah, that test was easy, are always the ones that never did as good as they thought they were going to do. No, it was definitely but, not easy. Yes. So I also, uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to introduce your mom because sure. you're the future of our profession, right? That's how I feel. Mm -hmm. You've come to us, you're, you're first, you're, you're basically, we hired you as a new graduate. Um, you've gone through a lot of, well, of course you came in during COVID. Yeah. So the number of cases you did, heart cases you did was really 
minimal compared to what you should have been doing. Um, but you've stuck with it. You've been patient with us. Of course, we've kind of gone through this too. You know, I didn't invent COVID. It didn't, it's not my fault. Uh, but certainly it was a challenge yeah. uh, for you. But you've also had the opportunity to see incredibly sick patients. And we can discuss that a little bit. And also learn probably more about ECMO in this one short period of time you've been here. What now? Almost a year, right? Isn't it almost a year? How long have you been with us? Four months, Joe. Four months. It feels like a year. <laughs> you've done really good. See how far along you've come. I don't even worry about you anymore. Yeah. Um, so four months. You've probably learned more in that four months yeah. than most perfusionists knew about ECMO in entire 20-year careers through just this episode. I but agree. I do want to introduce your mom. Mrs. Asmat, would you please join us up here for just one second? Mama, come here. So I'd like for everybody to see the Mama, biggest here, supporter and the biggest champion that <laughs> Ramsha has had in her life. This mm -hmm. is Mrs. Asmat, and I wanted everybody to say hello to her and wish her and her daughter the best throughout their career, and thank you so much for uh, for the support that you've given your daughter. It made a huge difference. Thank you so much, Mom. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. Hey, David, you. can you take a picture? Would it be hard for you to do? You can? Hold on one second. I want to, here, can she come stand here between us? Mama, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to take a quick picture. Just be patient with us, please. Oh, wait, put my glasses on. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mrs. Asmat, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, anyway, with that said, Ramsha, uh, besides the uh, thing, you know, my talk today is on the, uh, my perspectives on how the healthcare industry managed the COVID-19 pandemic and what is exceptionalism and heroism. So before I really get into it, obviously you went through school during, you were in school during the COVID pandemic. It had tremendous effect on you and your training and everything else. Can you share with us all sort of what that experience was for you, what you have sort of taken away from it all? So definitely when we um, started, pandemic started hitting around March of last year and classes became more virtual and our like lab trainings were stopped at that time. We couldn't go to school. So everything was mainly virtual. It was very hard to learn everything mainly for like perfusion and scan on the yes. science courses. You can get through it. It's easier. Mm -hmm. But mechanics was the hardest. So mm -hmm. that's where we were delayed. In and uh, we had to put off our trainings. I remember my director Julie Collins had to like get special permissions for us after almost you can say four or five months to let us into the schools and actually get on because we were getting ready for our, uh, to go out on our rotations. Even at that time, we were scared. We were like, maybe we might not be able to go, and maybe our graduations will be pushed off mm -hmm. another you know year or so. So that was definitely what we were, the biggest fear was, to being pushing our graduation off. And it was definitely hard being at home, being in our, you know, apartments and just, like, studying 
that took the big troll off some of us students as well. Mm -hmm. Sure, depression. depression. You know, you're not with your peers. You're mm -hmm. not in a group. You're not talking to people. You're isolated. You're mm -hmm. in one place. I imagine that required a tremendous amount of discipline. Oh, it really did. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll also tell you that, you know, my biggest concern, your biggest concern was getting your training and mm -hmm. your pushed back. My biggest concern was the exact same thing because we, and I'm going to show you some data here going on with this presentation, we were overwhelmed mm -hmm. and we needed, we needed trained people. And I will tell you this, and I think this is very important. When I really knew how well you were trained um, was the day we were in the ICU um, and we needed to change a circuit out on a patient who was critical that was not going to tolerate being mm -hmm. off ECMO for very long while the change occurred. And uh, you were scrubbed, we had the sterile field ready, and you had the clamps, the scissors, the connectors, everything that you needed, and you did it. And that was, uh, that was I mean, that had to have been a couple of months ago. Yeah. So you were with us for maybe a couple of months. And it was really, I was very, I felt really good what, well, first of all, you exhibited you and you and you communicated to me confidence to be able to do this, and that confidence gave me a sense of okay, we're going to let you do it, and uh, and when I watched you do it, it was very well thought out. It was very you know uh, step by step. You 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 did it. you knew what you were going to do. You did what you what you were going to do or what you had planned out. Your plan was good. And the change out went, went beautifully. So you did an exceptional job. And at Thank that point you. in time, I knew you were going to be a very, very, you were going to be a great perfusionist moving forward in your career. Because if you could do that in two, at two months, I was impressed. Thank you. And I don't impress that easily. Okay. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. You're welcome. Well, thank you, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they have apparently. Apparently, we don't pay our our, our Bluetooth bills, and the antenna doesn't reach over to there. I have to do the same thing. They make me do it, okay. or either that or this wood is too thick. One or the other. I can't tell which it is. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so my plan is to do a couple of slides. I'm going to go, you know, do like five slides or so. I may stop intermittently just to have some discussions. If anyone wants to call in, we can turn the phone line on. Um, I know that when I'm done with my slides, Matt Warhoover from Vanderbilt is going to join us uh, by telephone. He was going to come in video, but he had some uh, uh, conflicts that he was unable to do that. But I think he's going to call in. So we can just open the phone lines from the beginning, and I'm going to go ahead and go forward and get these slides started. So again, my perspectives on how the healthcare industry managed the COVID-19 pandemic and secondarily, what is exceptionalism and what is heroism? So this picture that you see here is a snapshot in time. And it was on, I think it was on Sunday. It was Saturday or Sunday. I can't really remember which it was. And what you're seeing there is at that one moment in time, and it was somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, local time here, every single airplane that is currently in the air at that time, at that one moment in time. And the yellow ones versus the blue ones just means that the yellow ones are being tracked by ground radar and the blue ones are being tracked by satellite.
So, but it's all the same thing. It just depends on which way they're 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 looking at the aircraft. And so, what you see there is enorm is an enormous amount of travel of people, and that's really what I'm trying to to, to illustrate here with this. Again, this is simply one moment in time. If we go to this website, Flight Trader, right now, and you look it up, you would be amazed at any given moment how many airplanes are traveling intercontinentally or inter you know or 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 transcontinentally or intercontinentally or uh, country to country transatlantic transpacific you name it so what you see here is a slide that shows in 2019 there were approximately 1.4 billion international travel travelers people that traveled internationally in the world so this is in millions so this equals 1.5 billion and then you see the pandemic and how that travel dropped and that had to do with people closing their borders and doing a whole lot of things like that and just as a point of just a a a, a, a nugget of information it was the travel that we saw in the late 1980s uh, on terms of international travel. So since then, we've grown like this, and we dropped all the way back down to that level. Now, I think it's growing back up again, but in this sourced statista, that is what they show. So this comes from the Texas Medical Center TMC uh, website. And if you go to that website and look up the COVID-19 or coronavirus uh, data, you can find all of these graphs. And it's an excellent website. It has some tremendously useful information in there. But basically what you can see here is this is the weekly average of daily COVID-19 positive cases. And it's very important that you look at this in the way you really need to look at it. It's not the week, it's not per week. So when you look at this number here, this 4,282, this is the average daily number of new cases. That's every day for that week. So it's Sunday to Saturday, 4,282, and whatever variation there is to get that average for that week. And when you look at this and you consider those numbers, it is amazing at how many people were infected that we know of uh, with the, uh, the, the, the virus that causes COVID-19. So this comes from the Houston uh, Chronicle. I just want to read it. It's written by Mike Morris, Emily Foxhall, and Alex Stuckey. In the, and it was published in the Houston Chronicle. In the early days of the coronavirus outbreak, the public messaging from the federal level down to local levels was consistent. Risk to the public was low. More than 850,000 people had at that time passed through the NRG uh, gates, and this is for the Houston Rodeo, by the way. As officials insisted, there was no evidence the virus was spreading unchecked. But a Houston Chronicle investigation based on thousands of pages of emails, texts, documents, and more than 50 interviews shows that a, 
cascade of failures starting at the federal level left local officials ill-equipped to confront what has become the biggest public health threat in generations. Public, uh, local public health officials learned of the region's first case of COVID-19 on March 4th, but epidemiologists found that nearly three dozen people in Harris County who later tested positive said their symptoms started before that date, some as early as February 10th. Three of those four patients, in fact, did die. Now, this first case on March 4th is one we took care of. If you remember, the police officer from Patton Village, uh, his name was Chris Hernandez. We've done programs. He's been here. Um, he's been in the public domain with what his experience was, um, was patient zero for us. The first COVID-19 ECMO patient was, in fact, that police officer from Patton Village who went on to do very well, walked out of the hospital, and, uh, and went home, but not without a six-week course of ECMO. And so he was quite sick. But keep in mind, too, this was the original strain, not as we moved on with the different variants that we've experienced, in particular Delta, which we can talk a little mm -hmm. bit more about. Records show early efforts to contain the virus were hamstrung by stringent U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines on who could be tested. So there was an issue that we weren't testing people. Mm -hmm. The federal agency had shunned the World Health Organization tests, then bungled its own attempt to produce them, leaving too few to go around. Houston area doctors were complaining to local pu uh, public health officials as early as January that they were sending home patients with COVID-like symptoms who had traveled to China, but not specifically to Wuhan province. Still, local officials kept the rodeo going for days after the region identified its first case, or its first cases. Reluctant to pull the plug until it became clear they could not contain the spread. They finally shut it down two weeks after its kickoff celebration when public health officials learned the virus was there from the beginning. They traced it back to the pre-rodeo barbecue cook-off to tent C-706. Now, I don't know how they did that, but, you know, it's one of those things when they say that, it's like, I don't have any choice but to believe this, yeah. that they can actually take it that, that far down. Um, and I think that uh, we did get, we did really uh, end up um, behind the eight ball with this. And I want to, I'll, I'll show a little bit more as we move forward. If there's anything I'm saying that you mm -hmm. want to elaborate on or ask me about, anybody calling in, wants to call in and do it or chat on the YouTube, and I think Magic's watching the Facebook, but mm -hmm. if there's anything, just interrupt me, okay? okay? So here's some perspectives, and this comes from Frontiers in Public Health. In, on February 1st of 2020, there were 12,000 38 cases known in the world. The world deaths that we knew of were 259, with 100% of those deaths having occurred in the country of China. Cases were known to be in 25 countries. There were eight known cases in the United States. Texas had no cases at this time, and Houston area cases were also zero since there was none in Texas. Fast forward now 
to October 16th of 2021, approximately 18 months, right? Somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. World cases, 241 million plus. World deaths, nearly 5 million. Cases in all countries, so it's completely circumvented the globe. It's everywhere. And it's not hard to imagine that. Look at that map of the air travel. Okay, it's so easy for that to happen. But there's another reason for it, too, which I think is very interesting. U.S. cases have now topped 45.7 million. Texas has had over 4 million. And in the Houston area, where we are, there has been 569-plus thousand of uh, these cases. But what does all of that mean? So I want to take a little bit of a, a step back and talk about the effective reproduction rate. And that has nothing to do with us proliferating our spirit species. But it is proliferation of a species, that's for sure. Um, so what do you know about the effective reproduction rate of a virus? It's very fast. Yes, but, but do you, do you, so do you have, do you know, because I don't know, I, I didn't know anything about this, and I had to really do a, a lot of reading to understand it better. So an R, uh, let's say if you look at this graph and you look at the, the left here, you can see it was almost, it was certainly more than 3.5 and bordering on about 3.8. Okay, but what does that mean? And this was back in April of 2020. Now you go and you see it fall tremendously and then it's kind of going back and forth. It gets under one and it stays there, then it goes above again and now it's down at 0.89. But what does that actually mean? It means that one person, how many other people will one person infect? Mm -hmm. So, and I want to talk a lot about what that, why that is so significant, why that's so important, and why a number of 3.8 is so huge. Even 2.5 is huge. 1.5 is huge. And I'll explain a little bit why as we move forward with this. But so for in back in April of uh, 2020, every person that was positive for COVID-19, one person would affect approximately 3.8 people. So that's what the effective reproduction rate means. Growth in new infections when R and D are fixed. In other words, in this example I'm going to give you, the reproduction rate and the number of days are fixed. And this has to do with the mathematics. And this comes from a very good uh, article I read on demystifying the math of the coronavirus. And it comes from uh, Harvard and the Hebrew University. Changes in social distancing bring about changes in R. So if you look back at this previous slide, you see it's very high. But when we shut the country down, you see the reproduction rate went way down. The reason for that has to do with our social behaviors. Um, uh, and to some extent also changes in D, which is the number of days. But in order to have a simple mental model of the progression of the virus, it is useful to first consider the case where R, reproduction rate, and D are fixed. Imagine a population where D equals 4 and R equals 2.5. So 4 days, 
reproduction rate of 2.5. And the current rate is 100 daily new infections at the moment you start this out. On the average, each of these will generate 2.5 additional infections. The 250 additional infections will occur on different dates, some within a couple of days and others a week or two later, but on the average they will occur four days out. To trace how many of them occur on each day is complicated, so we make a rough approximation and lump them together, assuming that all 250 of them occur on day four. We summarize by saying that after four days, the number of daily new infections is multiplied by 2.5, and they say more generally. Returning to the example where D is 4 and R is 2.5, we apply the same idea over and over. After any four-day period, the number of daily new infections is multiplied by 2.5. Thus, if there are 100 new infections on day 0, then there will be 250 new infections on day 4. 250 times 2.5, 625 new infections on day 8. 625 times 2.5 equals 1,563 new infections on day 12, and so on. The exponential notation of 2.5 to the nth power indicates n repeated multiplication by 2.5. So we can summarize by saying that after n four-day periods, the number of daily new infections is multiplied by 2.5 to the nth power. Now, that's a lot of somewhat complicated math, but there is a real scientific method to how they came up with this. And what this shows is how incredibly fast a virus can spread from one person to a million people. And it's amazing at how fast that can happen. So if you look here, after n periods of d days, the number of daily new infections is multiplied by r uh, with an exponent of, of n. Figure one below shows the daily new infections under the assumption that d equals 4, r is 2.5. Note that the values on days that are between 0 and 4 or between 4 and 8, etc., are filled in by inter interpolation. Um, at this point, it is not important to determine how exactly this is done. Again, this is complicated math. They do make a lot of assumptions. They admit that they make a lot of assumptions. But when you take into consideration how few cases there were on that day when I showed you how many it started with and where we are today, it makes a lot of sense to me. But yeah. if you look at this, this is an R of 2.5, and you follow it 100 people, and you go to 250, 625, 1563. By the time you get to day 16, it's not that you have 3,906 new infections. It's that you have 3,906 new infections per day. That's what's so important and that's really the critical point of this. So the 100 new infections a day, that's 100, 100, 100. It looks like it goes up, and then you have 250. Here you have 625. That's every day. And those people are accumulating more and more and more. And if you have an incubation period 
of between 10 to 14 days or maybe even longer in some cases, and you don't have any clue you're infected, it is just spreading like wildfire. Yep. And it's just, it is frightening to me at how fast this could actually happen. In contrast, when your R is low, under 1, and in this case 0 0.6, you see that your infections start to diminish. 100 per day here, and by day 16, you now have only 13 new infections per day. So if R is greater than 1, then new infections explode exponentially. If R is less than 1, that daily new infections decay to zero. And this I got off of the TMC website as well. Uh, they're very good. Like I said, they have a lot of really good information on there. Mm -hmm. I, I looked at this every single day. And you could see that in this model, they show that community control occurs when you have less than one for 15 days. And uh, for the past 31 days now, we have been under one. Now, it's not in that model where you saw 0.6. It's still up here about yeah. point, it's 0.79 right now, certainly trending in the right direction. What I'm concerned about, and I've seen this, by the way, as high as 2 point, I think it was mm -hmm. like 2.9, 3.2. Mm -hmm. It's been very, very high. The effective yeah. reproduction rate of this virus has been enormous. And, uh, but this is a very key indicator mm -hmm. of where we are. And there's several, and we're going to go through those, okay. those as we go forward with this. But look, we had the first wave. You were mm -hmm. in school. We had the second wave. I believe you were still in school. Yep. You got here, I think, at the tail end. Maybe, I guess no, because we went through the third wave. Just you now. were just getting here. And I actually thought that, I mean, look, I got tricked. I, I don't know what you thought, but I mm -hmm. thought it was over. When I saw the last drop-off, and I'll show you a graph, I was feeling pretty confident that we were really, that we had this behind us. But uh, then we just got slammed, and it just uh, went, went nuts. What was your experience? So with mine, I did know that we were going to have another wave. You did? You thought we would have this yeah. fourth wave? Oh, yeah. Why and, did you think that? And we're going to have more. I don't think COVID is going to leave us. Because you think we're going to have a fifth wave? I totally believe so, yes, until people don't completely vaccinate themselves. And even with that, the virus, when it gets into the human body, it's going to, um, when it reproduces, it's going to go through mutations. That's how we're developing new mutations. So mm -hmm. that's how I think. I personally believe it's very hard to control it. How HIV is so hard mm -hmm. and AIDS. Where mm -hmm. we haven't found a cure for that since yet. Mm -hmm. And even with like flus every year, we bring new vaccines to help. Mm -hmm. So I believe that's the way this COVID is gonna work like flu. But I'm hoping that it starts decreasing. It we don't have like really major drastic numbers the way we are seeing. Mm -hmm. But I do believe we are gonna have a fifth wave coming soon. Do you think we'll have a fifth wave that is more blunted than this fourth wave, or do you think it will be as bad or worse? That I can't say. Mm -hmm. That I think it might be the same, but how Delta was, that was worse. And of course, then you get into the question of, 
the virus's virulence. Mm -hmm. So I think the original strain was not um, as strong. I don't think it was. Because we it had some patients that really, you know, really went south. But actually, the patients that we put on ECMO during the first and second waves um, actually did fairly well comparatively. Mm -hmm. During the third and fourth waves, um, our, our results, our outcomes are, are abysmal. Oh, yeah. And, it's, uh, and so I, was, I'm, I have to only assume that, of course, we have no actual treatment. You know, they have this new antiviral now mm -hmm. that's come out, but and the monoclonal antibody seems mm -hmm. to be helping. But if you get a really large load of virus in your lungs, in your, in your pneumocytes, it is just devastating. It's very devastating. Mm -hmm. And I, like the first few variants, it wasn't affecting the younger generation. Right, that's another thing too. The newer, gen the newer Delta variant has affected uh, kids as young as 15 year olds Yes. And I was talking to one of my friends who's in Chicago, and I asked her, I was like, how's the conditions there? And she was like, we just recently put someone on that's uh, on ECMO who's 15-year-old. I was like, 15? Mm -hmm. And here, I think the, mm -hmm. or like the youngest. Wait, 19. 19, yeah. 19 year old. And, he's, and he passed. And he passed. Mm -hmm. He did. So mm -hmm. it's definitely been a lot more stronger. Yes, I think it has been, too. I think it's been a much more a much more um, uh, uh, severe rea and I, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I, there's been a debate, is this, a, is this an inflammatory process or is this viral rep replication and death of pneumocytes? And I, I, I think that if you, if you have, if it's an inflammatory process, you have some chance of surviving, surviving that, getting yeah. through that. ECMO really does benefit that patient. Mm -hmm. And Michelle was a good example yeah. of that. Her pro And I think she was more of the original strain. Yeah. She was not Delta. Mm -mm. And, of course, she was a Zumba instructor. She was healthy. She has a lot of things going her direction, her way, um, that helped her a lot. But, uh, but she's an anomaly. Yeah, she was the one of them. Delta variant? Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a lot of, uh, I've seen very uh, poor, poor outcomes. Yeah. Very poor. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. I totally agree that we have been seeing some of the worst and devastating, especially we had a patient that was 26 year old who that was the worst. Yes. I remember. I know who you're talking about. That yep. was one of the worst yes. patient conditions I have seen. Yes. I know what you're talking about. Okay. Well, so we're going to go over to here now, and we're going to look at, this kind of summarizes everything that we just talked about, and you see here you have an R of 2.5, and you'll notice how this peak is actually lagging, and that has to do with a number of factors, including the incubation period before you feel sick, and uh, all of that kind of stuff, but you'll notice how this has peaked, and these are daily new infections, and here we are with an R of 2.5 dropping to 1.5, or 1.25, I'm sorry, and you're at 29,594 daily infections at day 40. And then you can see here, either through uh, changes in social behavior, 
whether it be effective treatments, whether it be uh, vaccines, whatever the reason is, when you drop that R down to 0.6, you see very easily, very quickly, how fast the cases uh, begin to decay. And so that is, a, uh, that is a sure reason why we need to get that R as low as we yeah. possibly can get it and be uh, extraordinarily careful. And we'll talk a little bit about vaccines as we move forward and maybe a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of uh, 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 ideology and, and, and uh, philosophy on that topic. Um, but as we, as we move towards the end of this, uh, I wanted to show you this, a very interesting graph. Uh, again, it comes out of the TMC, Texas Medical Center website. And what you're looking at on the blue bars is the seven-day trend of daily tests that were performed, the number of daily tests. And the red line is the seven-day trend of the test positivity rate. In other words, what percentage of tests that were done were positive. And you'll notice, and it's a, it's a real theme, if you look at the shape of that red line, you'll notice that it goes up and it goes down, goes up, and this is reflective of the waves that we saw. But if you notice in the beginning, 22% of the people who were being, and I'll highlight that real quick, that were being tested were, had positive tests. As waves disappeared, as the numbers dropped off, you saw the test positivity rate fall to 3.4, 3.9, Then you see it going up again. Here we are at 14%. And then as the numbers go down, you see our test positivity rate continue to fall. So there are two things, actually several things, but two things in this case with the reproduction rate and the test positivity rate. The lower your test positivity rate, the more community control you have of the viral spread. This is another example, and again, the same theme, and you notice how the shape uh, mimics everything that we're talking about, but this is the weekly average of TMC daily new COVID-19 hospitalizations. So if you look, for example, during this week at one of the peaks, Every day for that week, there was essentially 360 admissions into a TMC, which encompasses about nine counties, um, plus or minus, um, being admitted to the hospital for COVID-19. Here you see 335. Here you see that when I thought this was going to be over, we were down to 48, and then suddenly it jumped all the way up to 390, and as a October 17th, we were at 108 patients per day admitted to the hospital. So were we really ready? What's been my experience here in Houston? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of contradictory information. I don't think anybody will ever be able to convince me that there was in any way a cohesive message that was sent to us about what we should all be doing from a public health administration uh, perspective. I completely, agree. they completely blew this. Yeah. Um, hospitals started, of course, early on. This was in like December, January, around that time. 
started restricting international travel of staff. We actually were making jokes about putting limes over the hospital room doors to identify who the coronavirus patients were. Okay? I'm serious. We did. We had, I had, look, I, I knew we would have patients. I, I missed it too. Yeah. I never in my wildest imagination believed it was going to ever be this bad. Yeah. I've never, I've said this, I don't know how many times, I have never in my long career, I'm not going to say the number of years because I say it, I don't want it to become um, <laughs> redundant. But in all the years I've been doing this, I have never seen anything like this. Yeah. I thought H1N1 was bad. This makes H1N1 look like a, a, a scraped knee that needs a Band-Aid. It was, it, this has been bad. It's been very bad. Our first COVID-19 ARDS ECMO patient was early March. Of course, that's our patient zero that shut the uh, rodeo down. To date, there is a 1.6 chance of dying if you are diagnosed with COVID and you're in the state of Texas. Nationally, it's 2%. However, if you are hospitalized in one of the nine counties that encompasses the TMC area, if you're hospitalized, you have a 10% chance of dying. And I believe, as you said, I put it on there, the variants have a lot to do with that. This next slide you might find kind of interesting. And I put some, if you look at the, on this side, on the right side right here, I put these four dots. And that's just to identify the ECMO patients. Now, this is ordinarily a community hospital that has a 30-bed ICU. This was during the winter. So this was somewhere around, when did we have that freeze? Um, February. February. So this was in February. And what you see is out of the 30 beds, 25 of those beds were filled with COVID patients. Four of those patients were on ECMO. Several more could have easily qualified for ECMO when you just looked at the numbers, but we have had as many as six ECMOs in this one hospital at one time. And this is a place where for us to see one or two ECMOs at the same mm-hmm. time was a, a very infrequent occurrence comparatively. We might have one, and this is during flu season yeah. generally, or we may have a different diagnosis. What's very important to look at here, though, is you have one space right here that's blank. There's nobody in that room. They were fighting over that bed for a patient that needed heart surgery or a patient that was on the floor that was beginning to decompensate that needed to come to the ICU to be taken care of with a higher level of care that they could give them upstairs. So that is the reality of what we have gone through. There was one bed in a 30-bed ICU and these, this is 25 COVID patients, four of them on ECMO. This is an ICU that was normally always full without COVID patients, heart patients, 
other types of patients. Um, and so now we're looking at a situation where the hospital is overrun. They've had to create expansion units yeah. to take care of other patients. But another thing to look at, look at the nurse. If you look here at this ECMO patient, this is Vicki. Mm -hmm. If you look right here, this is Sophia. If you look right here, Sophia not only has an ECMO patient, but she has another COVID patient. If you look here, you have, this is Cassie. You have Cassie, and here you have, uh, down here, you have, what does that say? I can't see it. Krista? Mm -hmm. That might say Krista. Yeah, Krista. And then Krista has another COVID patient, plus a VA ECMO patient. You have tripled. You have, pay, you have nurses here tripling, taking care of three yeah. patients in the ICU at the same time because there's a, we could talk about the nursing shortage. We could discuss all of this stuff. But the strain on the health care system was unbelievable. I mean, an ECMO patient should be one-to-one. -one, yeah. But they're... There's no one to take care of the patients. Mm -mm. So you, you are going to take care of more than one patient. Now, they tried to give the ECMO nurses a non-ECMO patient, but they have to uh, do what they have to do. Look, look at the Knights. Oh, shoot, I'm sorry. Look here, Matt, ECMO patient. Matt, right here. Yeah. Here you have, you know, Lander, non-ECMO patient and an ECMO patient. So you're doubling patients on a, such a high acuity patient as an ECMO patient having to take care of someone else, which is going to bring me to a point this physician made from uh, uh, Wyoming, I believe he's from. Um, I don't remember, but I'll, I'll remember when I see it. Uh, but this is a reality. This was seen yeah. by many, many hospitals. And you've seen this too, right? Yes. When we had the unit was just packed full. And how many times did we hear rapid response, oh, code blue, rapid response on the different floors, yeah. and there's no room in the ICU for them. And somebody would, a patient would pass, and there was no time to grieve. Yeah, there was no time. You had to take the patient, you had to take now the deceased patient out of that room because somebody else needed to be in yeah. that room. It was horrifying. It is, and we're still seeing it today. Yeah. We're still seeing Not it. as bad. Yeah, that's Not true. as bad. I have to admit, it's not as bad. I'm starting to feel like the light at the end of the tunnel this yeah. time isn't the train. Now it's not as bad, but I remember when I started and we were at the peak, mm -hmm. I was seeing that a lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable experience. Um, here is a patient summary, kind of go over the numbers that I gave you earlier. The total number of patients hospitalized in the TMC community hospitals was, was uh, 96,566. There are still 1,081 patients still hospitalized. Discharge was 86,581, which gives us the number of deaths, and it's a 9.2% uh, death. It's, uh, it's, you know, the calculation I did earlier, I think I said 10%. In this particular scenario, it's 9.2% but that doesn't include those currently hospitalized patients. And I'm gonna stress something else. Discharged, 
doesn't necessarily mean discharge to home with a normal, regular life again. Oh, yeah. It means a lot of those patients with this disease got discharged as pulmonary cripples. Mm -hmm. We may have gotten them through it, but their life is never going to be the same. Nope. Mm -hmm. What's your experience with that? You've seen several patients that have gone to LTAC, I'm assuming, to LTAC or to TIER and uh, gotten had to stay in those facilities oh, yeah. for a very lengthy periods of time. Yeah, they're on BiPAP and CPAP for right. support, and they're slowly weaning them off. Even with that, when they go home, they're having difficulty breathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they will never run up a flight of stairs no, again. They won't. Mm -mm. As you said, they're going to be crippled for life. Yeah, pulmonary cripples, absolutely. So our response, well, in the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was also a lot of hope, and we all know hope is never a good strategy, but there was still a lot of hope. I was hopeful. Yeah. Expansion of bed space happened, and I'm hoping that uh, we can get Matt online because when he gets online, he can talk about how they turned an entire, this is Vanderbilt, they turned an entire, higher parking garage floor into a COVID unit. Oh, wow. And uh, converted it and did it very quickly. Hopefully, he'll be able to call and give that, uh, give that experience. Um, there was a reduction of elective cases, which I'm going to talk a little bit about as we move forward here. In fact, that reduction was, in some cases, a total cessation mm -hmm. of elective cases. We were repurposing heart-lung machines because we didn't have enough machines to uh, basically put on ECMO all of the patients that we had. There were staffing challenges to cover increased the bed, the increased bed space, patients, increased acuity, all of those things. And nurses were absolutely stretched to a breaking point in order to uh, take care of the patients that they were taking care of. Patients were having difficulty getting into hospitals, not to mention families that couldn't see their loved ones. People yeah. getting called on the telephone, your loved one is dead, where would you like us to send them? And they're like, what? They didn't even know. And uh, they were building, I remember at uh, one of the hospitals we go to, if you remember, they, they started building negative pressure rooms and they mm -hmm. were putting, they just modified things, just brought these big fans in and were sucking the, the air from the inside of the patient's room out. We had debates over whether or not you could transmit COVID through the ECMO. Yeah. We were, which we found out we can. We can. Um, we cannot. Oh, we cannot. No, cannot. No. Not no, the ECMO not. patient positive, right? No. So you can be COVID positive, but the, the uh, PMP fiber won't transmit. Uh, okay. You don't get you don't get COVID transmission through the outlet gas. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and we didn't know. Yeah. Of course, when we first started this, there was no vaccine. Yeah, there was. No we had no vaccine, and we had to take care of these people. We were putting paper suits on. We were getting. We were wearing N95s. We were wearing respirators. We were doing all kinds of stuff. But I don't know how I didn't get it because I went into so many patients' rooms in a hurry because there was a problem, the ECMO mm -hmm. was chattering, there was an issue. I didn't have time to put yeah. all of that stuff on because if I'd have done all of that, the patient wouldn't have made it. Exactly. So how many exposures did we have? What about all of those nurse practitioners, PAs, intensive care pulmonary docs, ER docs, that were intubating these people right in their face? Yeah. 
uh, you know, I tell you what, was, I, I, I'm surprised more healthcare professionals did not die from COVID. Yeah. I'm really surprised Me too. that we didn't completely decimate our ranks. Now, many did, yeah. but not nearly as much as I would have thought would have happened, given, again, I think the original strain mm -hmm. was not nearly as deadly. You might have gotten sick, and a few people got super sick. Yeah. A lot of people were, were asymptomatic, mm -hmm. and some just lost their sense of smell and taste yeah. and had a little runny nose, and they were done with it. So it, it, it really ran the gamut. Uh, but most people just didn't get that sick. Yeah. It flipped by Delta, yeah. and time. you got really sick, and a lot of the percentage went up of yep. people that reacted to this. Um, the vaccine rollout, I think, was a little messy. Um, and do we all feel the same now as we did then? I have, as a point of reference, I think this is very important, I have not seen one patient on ECMO. We've done over a hundred COVID ECMOs in the past 18 months. You do realize that? Yeah. That's a lot of ECMO, over a hundred. That's a lot. Not one of those patients, of course, early on, there was no vaccine. Yeah. But since the vaccine has become available, I have not seen one patient needing ECMO in our practice of five different hospitals, yeah. three that are more two that are mostly dominant in this in this mm -hmm. in this field but really three uh that uh, that have been that have been vaccinated have you have you seen anybody no. vaccinated that's needing ecmo no no so i think that's an important important concept and then what did it do to us as a business um i think this is also very important if you look here at um the uh let me pick out the, the lines I want you to look at. So in this area here, this part that you see down here, this is the new reported cases going back from March until September of this year. So a full over, over one year, so a year and a half. If you look here, this is our heart volume. This is our auto transfusion volume. And this is our total volume. And if you look at our heart volume, we normally do about 130 hearts per mm -hmm. month as a practice. It was already starting to drop down, but I sort of attributed that to the, just the winter months. We sometimes see that at the very beginning of the year. But look at where it went to. We went to almost zero. Our heart volume, our case volume for hearts went so low and at the time when we were in this area because you remember early march was when we had our first ecmo patient and we only had one there was literally nothing for any of us to do we weren't going to work oh, wow. there were no cases if you look at our auto transfusion volume look at how that dropped we usually have our auto transfusion volume is usually up here 325 cases a month we were already low, which is not unusual at the beginning of the year. But look at where it went to. That's an enormous difference. Drop. So economically, it devastated us. It was horrifying. Now, if you notice, we really, in terms of our heart volume, a couple of the months, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me, a couple of the months, 
we got up to what is normally our number that we usually see, but you'll notice the entirety of the year, our heart volume has really languished behind what we have seen historically throughout the years, as has our auto transfusion volume. Yeah. It's been hurting us a lot economically. And it follows the curves. But this was the shutdown. This is when they locked everything down. And here you see another uh, graph that I have, daily new COVID-19 cases and daily new COVID-19 hospitalizations. And you can see that the waves pretty much follow each other. The total number of cases, total number of hospitalizations. And you have plus or minus, based on these numbers, a 13% chance of hospitalization. So going backwards, if you get COVID, you have a 2% chance of dying from it. 98% mm -hmm. chance you're not going to die. If you get hospitalized, you have between 9.2 and 10%, roughly a 10% chance of dying if you end up hospitalized. But you have a 13% chance of getting hospitalized. Yeah. A lot of people. That's a high percentage. It's a lot of people. That's a high percentage. Then we need to talk about collateral damage. The original response, and this comes from Keith Neal, who's a co-editor of Journal of Public Health, and actually I thought it was very interesting. So if you don't mind, I'll read it. The original response to the coronavirus disease in 2019 pandemic in many countries was to preserve the health services and be able to treat patients acutely ill with COVID-19 and other conditions. Most countries in the Western world achieved this, but the consequences of this led to a decline in the delivery of other health services. The long-term consequences of this will only be seen in the years to come. One of the biggest worries was greater than 50% reduction in urgent referrals from general practice under the two-week wait for possible cancers. So if you have a, a, a general practitioner sees you and senses something, uh, feels something, or whatever, and he's concerned you have cancer, mm -hmm. you want to get a referral and be seen yeah. by an oncologist within two weeks. Mm -hmm. So when that goes beyond that, your chances of dying from that disease start to go up. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to this, cancer screening programs were also reduced. It will be impossible to identify which deaths from cancer were COVID-related and those not. The perennial problem of identifying lives saved for prevention against lives saved by direct clinical care. Related to this, another debate society needs to have is whether lives saved or years of life lost is the priority. There are no clear answers to this, and sometimes a choice has to be made. Certainly, it's an ethical quagmire. We all know that. This is important as to whether everyone with COVID, regardless of age, remaining life expectancy, should be the priority for the health services or using resources to identify and cure early cancers in younger people, meaning they have more remaining life expectancy. This should be answered by society as a whole as we are all involved and not just left to politicians or physicians. It's a very good point. It is. What are your views on this? I will say it's also contraindicating too because if you think about it, um, 
I'll have to be careful what I say. Why? <laughs> because definitely, like, COVID, it's now. And people are really focusing on, you know, treating those patients. But I also believe that since we have a vaccine, it's a choice now. Mm -hmm. So they should try to treat patients that are really in need, mm -hmm. that have not made poor decisions of not getting the vaccine because of some sort of their belief. Mm -hmm. I understand. So, so but... they should go back and I think treat the people that are very well in need, like cancer patients. Mm -hmm. Cardiac patients. Cardiac patients. You know, there's a lot vascular patients. Mm -hmm. But here's the, where, and, and we, I want to talk about this a little, a little later going on, and I have a slide actually about this. If you have an unhealthy diet, and you are obese, and you are sedentary, and you uh, smoke, and you get heart disease, we're going to operate on you. Yeah, we have to. If you, do we? Do we have to? As do health, we have to? As a healthcare provider, but, they say yes. But if you get COVID, you're saying the same thing. So this person over here who smoked, ate an unhealthy diet, didn't exercise, didn't do anything to help themselves. In fact, did everything they could to make themselves sick. We'll use a, uh, an alcoholic and a cirrhotic liver. We treat them all the time. Yeah. So do we stop treating them? So when you say those people that didn't get vaccinated shouldn't be a priority, well, they we have to... They should also look at other things like as you're mentioning. But should you do that with those diseases too? You take a look yeah. at what healthcare costs this country. We don't True. spend a whole lot of money on, on, uh, on health. We, in fact, really support as a country, and I think this is uh, common in the Western world, we actually value the, the development and success of unhealthy lifestyles because it makes money. Mm -hmm. So it's a real, it is, it is a, it certainly is a social dilemma. And I want to talk a little bit about heroism and exceptionalism. Are these terms appropriate in healthcare? And so, first of all, what is the true meaning of heroism? Well, heroism consists of putting others first, even at your own peril. The noun heroism comes from the Greek uh, heroes, which referred to a demigod. As someone who shows great courage and valor is referred to as a hero, their actions are considered to be acts of heroism. A hero is someone who protects other people. The greatest heroes risk something that matters to them, their life, their freedom, their reputation. What are examples of heroism? Well, heroism is defined as bravery and selflessness. When a fireman rushes into a fire and risks his life to save a child, is this an example of heroism? Heroic conduct or behavior? The qualities and actions of a hero or heroine, bravery, nobility, valor, etc. Healthcare professionals caring for patients with an unknown infectious respiratory virus. But is it? And let me explain so I can be somewhat provocative. Is a soldier that storms a bunker of the enemy to save himself and his fellow soldiers truly a hero? Yeah. Is he? Or is he doing his duty? He's doing his duty. Is doing your duty enough to be a hero? Did he volunteer? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Is he there because he wants to be there? Now, if he's a conscript, you know, he got drafted. <laughs> you don't have a whole lot of choice, yeah. but, you know, of course, that happens too. But, but is it truly heroism to do what is your job because you volunteered for that job? You're, you join the military, you know you are potentially going to put your life at risk. So you knew it up front. It's not random. So are the firemen that entered the World Trade Center to see who they could save? Are they heroes? We think they are. We, think we believe they are, yeah. they are. I think what they did was heroic. I think what they did was their duty. And they, to me, it's more exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're heroes to do what they did, of course. But we throw that word out pretty liberally. Yeah. Remember, this is what their job is. This is what they signed up for. This is what they knew could happen. And I'm getting to kind of where I'm going with this, because, of course, I feel these people truly are heroes. All of them yeah. are heroes. Um, but is the medical profession that cared for COVID patients early on, are we heroes? we are because we weren't we didn't knew this are was, we i didn't knew we were this was mm-hmm. coming is our definition of what a hero is correct do we not have a duty to act is it we not have a duty to our act. job it is part of our job and i'll tell you what i got a little bit burned out on this mm-hmm. so covid19 frontline heroes some say the fight against covid19 isn't a sprint it's a marathon for in this case mm-hmm. and this came out of the the media that for Houston Methodist workers on the front lines, it feels more like a series of triathlons. To support these employees, we created the COVID-19 Frontline Heroes Initiative to show our appreciation and that of the community. And there was all kinds of stuff. You see this happened over here at uh, the DFW, that's uh, up in Dallas-Fort Worth, North Texas COVID-19 Heroes. You see nurses there, I don't know exactly where that is, waving to the Blue Angels. There's Piedmont, I think that's in North Carolina. And you had the Blue Angels and the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds flying around the country and saluting all of the healthcare heroes. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. We've had a staffing crisis, mm-hmm. stress, mm-hmm. burnout, suicides, work related post traumatic stress, health and safety issues. 62% of hospitals have reported a greater than 7.5% vacancy rate. Now, if you take that and you look at our community, Perfusionist, where there's 4,400 of us, and let's just say it's 10%, that's 440 Perfusionists that you don't have. That's a lot. That is a lot for us. That's a lot for us. You look at nurses, there are 3.4 million nurses. 10% of that, 340,000. That's crazy. It does not take much to have a tremendous negative impact on your ability to just manage care, having the, 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 the human resources, the staff, the professionals to take care of these people. Doesn't take a lot. So this, I thought, was, uh, was, was, was really good. So this comes from the conversation. So because hospitals cannot open beds if there are no nurses to staff them, 
Some hospitals are being forced to shut down emergency rooms, turn away patients in need of medical care. That is a problem for not only hospitals in large cities, rural hospitals are also struggling. Alarmingly, some hospitals are considering the need to potentially ration health care. How some hospitals are addressing the shortage. Hospitals are desperate to fill nursing vacancies. One hospital system in South Dakota is offering incentives as large as $40,000 sign-up bonuses to recruit nurses to work in the clinical areas that are in most need. This may be a great attempt to draw nurses to an institution, but sign-on bonuses and incentives might not be enough to persuade some nurses to work at the bedside and continue contending with the current workload of the pandemic. Another strategy to fill vacancies is the use of travel nurses. Travel nurses work for agencies that assign them to hospitals that cannot fill vacancies with their own staff. Although this can be a successful short-term solution, the use of travel nurses is not sustainable over time, and it does not help retain experienced staff nurses in an organization. Travel nurses make significantly more money than staff nurses, which may lure nurses away from the permanent positions and in turn increase the staffing deficit for hospitals. The average salary for a travel nurse in the U.S. is $2,000 a week with $13,750 in overtime per year. Some nurses even accept crisis assignments, which can pay as much as $10,000 a week. This is significantly higher than the average $1,400 per week or $36.22 an hour for a staff nurse. So let's consider an example of XYZ. And why are we now celebrating them as heroes? This is what really bugs me a lot. If you read Sarah Flanagan, we are fighting for people for weeks, this came from Twitter, who will almost always die a difficult and uncomfortable death in the end. There is no dignity. There is no quality of life or in death. This is no longer nursing. This is no longer health care. It is a living nightmare. She goes on to say, the damage is irreversible. Many of us who leave will vow to never go back to the bedside. We are already scared, scarred, I'm sorry, and the scars just continue to grow. You can't say we didn't warn you. You can't say you didn't know. Profits were prioritized over people. Now, that may be a little bit of a cheap shot. I'm not sure that that's necessarily fair, but I do think she represents a lot of medical professional bedside patient care professionals who are, have been dealing with this for as long as we have been dealing with this. And it's a feeling that's concerning. Definition of exceptionalism, the condition of being different from the norm, also a theory expounding the exceptionalism, especially of a nation or a region. So my last provocative thought, and if you want, you want to see if uh, Matt can come on via TV? The real heroes in my estimation are those nurses and those perfusionists that stayed where they were and fought the good fight. These are my thoughts. Yeah. My idea of exceptionalism and true courage is the idea that was said very elegantly by a Dr. Baxter in Billings, Montana. The reality is I can't staff that. Do I give that optimal care to one patient or do I give great care to five? And this had to do with them making a decision to or not to use ECMO, surprisingly enough. 
Recently, a publication from the hospital where Dr. Baxter practices went from hearing cheers to the healthcare workers and heroes to the need to put up signs asking that the staff not be mistreated because the general public now is demanding that their family member be put on ECMO even if it is not indicated. I have noticed that. And that is another big, huge problem that comes from us taking our successes and publicizing them for the benefit of notoriety or marketing. Mm -hmm. And that is a real concern. That is one because, really big one. Yeah, Matt, I'll be, I'll be, I've just got one more slide. So for me, hey, Matt, for me, it is about honor, loyalty, fidelity, and courage. The honor to do your job. Mm -hmm. If you left to travel for money, creating a need, you are not a hero in my book. Yeah. If you left your job because you did not want to care for these patients, I don't view you as a hero. You signed up for health care. Yeah. You wanted all of the rights and privileges that are associated being in the field we chose, and I'll speak specifically about perfusion. You don't get to pick and choose who you take care of now. Yeah. That is not how this works. Mm -mm. Loyalty to your profession and your patients. Fidelity to your community. And the courage to do what you signed up to do even when you have an out. And to make hard choices and decisions predicated on what is best for the greatest number of people. That's real courage. Yeah, I is. think we use heroism sometimes misplaced where it should be incredible courage. Maybe a better way to describe things for some of us that have had to do this. Because nobody doesn't think that I wasn't scared yeah. to take care of these patients. I was. Mm -hmm. But that is what I get paid to do. Let's just, and it's actually not even about the pay. It's what I, it's what I, what, it's what I'm there for. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's just the way it works. But I will have to say, coming into Perfusion, knowing Perfusion, what it was before COVID, and knowing it now, it's a whole different ballgame. Absolutely. I can completely understand that. You thought you were going to do be doing hearts, and actually seeing people come into the hospital, get their heart surgery, go to the ICU, leave, go home, go back to their normal lives, yeah. and you have absolutely been, this has been trial by fire for you. Yeah, and I, it was mainly trainings on um, here on job with ECMO. I absolutely. never thought I needed to be communicating with nurses, communicating with patients, um, families, their loved ones with patients, doing things with patients, hands-on, bedside care. I never thought perfusion was this. Mm -hmm. It was a whole turnaround. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I will say that people that are going into perfusion or are, you know, in perfusion schools know that you guys will be dealing with all this. Absolutely. I, I, I think that, that is such a good point. I really appreciate that thought. That is, a ex that is an excellent point. Yeah. So I'd like to uh, discuss this, but I'd like to start with mandates, not if they should exist, but rather how should we prioritize care of vaccinated or unvaccinated patients. And using the analogy I used earlier, smoking and cancer and heart disease, drug abuse and endocarditis, obesity and diabetes and heart disease, you know, we take care of those patients, even though they have done a lot of this to themselves. 
Matt, welcome. How are you? Just fine, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How is your uh, How is your uh, family member doing? Everybody's uh, on the mend. Good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, our our prayers certainly went out. Um, anyway, I don't know how much of this you had a chance to participate in, but I'm here with Ramsha. I think Ramsha had some very um, uh, some great insight uh, and perspectives. Uh, what say you? I've I've been watching your I've been watching on the perf web a little bit the last ten minutes I think it's fantastic. Do you have any thoughts about some of the stuff? You may have missed a lot of it, but we talked about. I guess let me just ask you a question instead of something open ended. Um, can you share with the audience what you guys did in Vanderbilt when you uh, when you came to the understanding this was going to be a pandemic of epic proportions? and you were going to have a flood, potentially a flood of patients. I don't think we knew we were, and maybe you guys did. I, I didn't, but you prepared for it in the event of, and I was wondering if you could kind of go through that with us. Well, I, I guess what you're, what you're, if, you're, if I understand what you're asking is, how, how did we prepare once we knew a pandemic was upon us? Is that the question? Yeah, I think so. You know, because I know you built out a, a garage. You did. You, there was a lot of things you did. I remember you talking to me about it, and I was like, "Man, are you really doing that?" Because I didn't think this was going to be that bad. Well, and and I think in the in the early phases, I think we were really concerned about the overwhelming of the healthcare system as far as beds, uh, just in general. I don't think people realize the etiology, um, and, and in my opinion, the pandemic has changed. It's, 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 we've had waves of it, but every wave has been a little bit different. Uh, uh, the, the waves, I, you know, I, I, the first wave that I felt we saw was the wave that affected the, the elderly and the elderly community, uh, whether it be um, in, in long care facilities, assisted living facilities, you know, 55 and over communities or just, you know, just your elderly community that was interactive with the general public. Um, that, that was what I felt the first wave was, and it, and it drastically changed. Uh, I felt though that population was a little more um, su su you know, suspect or uh, the mortality was pretty high. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it was... I'm not going to say it was a quick, um, you know, swipe through, but we certainly never saw patients on for 90, 120, 180 days on ECMO with that patient population. Yes. It, it, it just, it, it, number one, it was counter, you know, it, it, it was, it, all, all every ECMO paper out there said it was counterintuitive to do that. Mm -hmm. And generally, those patients got so sick so fast and declined so fast that a lot of times ECMO wasn't even the option. Right. I mean, did yeah. you run out of, did you guys shut your heart surgery program down? Because we certainly did. We, we, that was the only service that we never shut down was cardiac. And primarily, at a huge uh, you know, medical center, there are four or five different uh, services that are your, your breadwinners to maintain an entire uh, medical center. Right. You know, many, many service lines 
are, are year after year, uh, you know, financial losers, but you have to have the whole uh, spectrum of service lines. I mean, that's, that's just how it works. Right, right. And, yes. And, and so orthopedics, which is usually, uh, for, I don't know the percentages, I'm not an expert, but orthopedics is usually an elective type surgery um, service line other than your trauma or, or your, you know, what, even if people fall, that, that's still considered trauma. Orthopedic was slowed down, if not stopped on electives, and everything else was generally stopped on electives except for emergencies or urgent care. Mm. Mm -hmm. Cardiac was not. We, we continued to do all aspects of cardiac care, but you also have to remember that a lot of our surgeries, we don't have elective-based cabbages. Right. Our, 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 our cabbage volume is probably one of our, our, our smallest, uh, you know, lines that we do in cardiac surgery. Right. Your transplants and, 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 uh, and uh, hot, VADs. Hot, yeah. VADs, high-risk, uh, redo cabbages, you know, valves, dissections, aneurysms. Uh, our, our elective three-vessel cabbage is, is, is a minority in our hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, from that aspect, we never slowed down. Which mm -hmm. is understandable. Say again. I said, which is understandable. How about how about as far as because you of course you have a school, um, yep. and uh, and and you know clearly you're on the phone. So Ramsh, I have to admit you you did go to the second best school in the country. Matt's is the first best school in the country. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you can just, be more honest, Joe. <laughs> Just teasing. There's better schools than what I no, went to. No, Rush was great. No, Rush was the second best in the country. It's it's tied with Vanderbilt. Actually, they're tied. They're both tied for first. I don't um, know. But uh, no, in all seriousness, so how did it affect your your student uh, training and you know, having their rotations down with you? Well, that that's I think on an earlier uh, talk on PerfWeb here, I thought we may have even covered that on a slide or two, but it drastically affected our perfusion uh, students' caseload. Yeah, Vander Vanderbilt has a history of, of a pretty strong academic. And I'm sorry, a strong academic, but I would say more more strong didactic program. And the the, the perfusion students get anywhere between 300 uh, to I would say 220 cases over 20 months. Mm -hmm. That's um, a good number. Our, yeah, yeah. Our, our our perfusion students that graduated this last year, I believe the the highest person obtained just a little over two hundred, and the lowest was just over one thirty. Yeah, big difference, huge difference. So, yeah, you're looking you're you're looking at between ninety and one hundred and fifty cases that were that were taken away per student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that that's just due to the exposures. And during the first wave, that first six to eight weeks, they weren't allowed in the operating room because they, they were really wanting to prevent a, a, the spread of even what was back then unknown before they had vaccines. Right. So what's your, and, what's your view? I think, I think I know what Ramsh's view is. You, you can, I'd like you two to discuss, and I'll ask Ramsh you first. So what, what, what is your view on vaccines? How do you... Uh, what are your feelings on mandates? Um, how do you feel about uh, some of these, you know, very healthy sports 
uh, athletes, you know, that are 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 saying I'm not going to get it. Um, other law enforcement people. Um, there's a whole bunch of people who are essentially saying I am. There's no evidence to support vaccines uh, being uh, the way to go, and they're refusing it. Um, what are your views on that? I mean, but just look at our hospital systems. They're over flooded with people that are non-vaccinated. And now it's affecting as people young as 15-year-olds that we're putting on ECMO. Mm-hmm. Our center had the, the youngest one was 19, you said. So it is affecting the younger generation, even the healthier people. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. have one recently that's pretty healthy. But do you think it There's should be required? In other words, are you supportive of the government or a business saying, for example, some of the hospitals here in Houston have said you cannot work here if you are not vaccinated. If you don't want to get the vaccine, that's your right. That's your no problem, but you can't work here. You're fired. Bye. See, that's where um, I'm a little confused, I would say, because, yes, uh, the hospitals should make that as a requirement. Should they? They should, but then if it's some form of, like, religious reasons or if that patient, like, has some sort of allergy restrictions that might be in that vaccine. Mm-hmm. That's where I understand that, okay, you know, it's going to be um, harmful for that person, then they should not take that vaccine. But if that patient, like person, sorry, is like healthy, they should go for it and mm-hmm. take it. Mm-hmm. It will help just reduce the numbers of, you know, COVID patients that are coming mm-hmm. into the hospitals. Mm-hmm. What's your view, Matt? Um, I like to use analogies because I think people can use words uh, and they can twist them around, whereas an analogy, I think, is a little more uh, clear-cut, and Mm. I think uh, it's easier to uh, understand the rationale. Um, I'll I'll start out by saying I feel the vaccine is like a life jacket. Yeah. Um, if If you're in a boat, Uh, in the middle of the ocean, you more than likely, even if you're one of the best swimmers, you'll make it if you fall out of that boat. Yeah. I've got no no problem. And and you could tread water and you can probably eventually, uh, you know, barring any other, if it's just you're worried about drowning, not any, you know, not any other extremity, but if you just needed to get to, to land, you could probably make it. Well, it depends on how far out you are. If sure, you're, sure. No, no, if well, you're 100 no, no, miles I'm, in the I'm, ocean, maybe not. No, no, I'm with you. But the, the, the point is is that you have a life jacket that is a known entity that you know increases your chances of, of not drowning. Yes. yes. Of high survival. I, w- I, I will also say there are straps on those life jackets that when you have those on, they could get your arm caught in it, could get around your neck. If, if you fell out the wrong way, it could do you harm. Very rare does that happen because of the design. Mm-hmm. But there is, it is not without the sticker or the label on it that says, you know, be warned that this is a choking hazard. And so there, there is an indication for these, 
but there's always an inherent risk with any product that we use in this day and age. Mm -hmm. you, you can look at any product that we buy, and I would venture to say there's a warning on the label of some sort of injury or you know happenstance that it comes with. Uh, I'll, I'll double down on it. So that's what I feel about the vaccine. I feel as it's a life jacket, and will will some excellent swimmers, you know, you get dropped in the middle of a lake, that you can see land around you, good chance that you probably uh, can make it to shore without the life jacket. You just don't know, and it's hard to tell who who's a good swimmer by just looking at people. And so I'll leave that at that. When it comes to the mandate, whether you should, you know, have to have it in a hospital system, I, I, I agree with your colleague there. Everything that she said is correct, and I'll double down on something. If you want to use a religious um, uh, exemption, and you, you know, you notify your employer that this is your religious exemption. I can already tell you what the next chess move is in this game. It's already happening to some of the healthcare people. So you've signed a legal document in your health record that you have an exemption because of religious reasons to A, B, or C, whatever's in the, is in the vaccine, because of what it's made up to be. That, that's what that's what people are using, correct? Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah, some people yeah. are using For, that. And then others it, are using, oh, we're allergic. Mm -hmm. so, okay. Yeah. So, yes. so, so yeah, that's correct. So, but you have to specifically say what you're allergic to, correct? True. Yes. Okay, so, so it's well-defined on what you're either allergic to or what your religious preference is that allows you to make an exemption to that product because of whatever A, B, or C is in the vaccine, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. The next step, and they're already going to do this, is that you have a health record. It goes into your health record that you're either allergic to it or you have a religious, just like Jehovah Witnesses, they, they're not going to receive blood. We're very mm -hmm. well versed in that. What they're going to do is if you become incapable of making a decision, whether on your own accord, you're, you have an accidental injury, if you cannot sign a waiver to con combat that, when you come to the hospital with an injury, unconscious, have a drug that's given to you that you need to be paralyzed or sedated, in your health record, they will not be able to administer a drug that has any of those components in it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there is a laundry list of drugs that have the same components that are in the vaccine that are in those drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... You're, even your loved one cannot, unless they have a power of attorney or a, a health, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the power of more or less your me a medical, medical directive, that they have, the, they have the ability to change it. If I, sign that, if I sign the medical waiver that says I don't want this because A, B, and C, if I hit my head on the ground and they bring me in, the hospital is not going to administer that to you. So, Matt, let me ask could, you. Which, mm -hmm. Which could be a life save, which could be a life saving, or a, a, a drug that actually could combat easily a, a, a problem that you'd have. Sure. So let me ask this: 
Um, and I'd like both of your opinions about this. So I'm going to start with you, Ramsh, if I may. So I am person X, and I don't want the vaccine um, at this point in time, right? So I've reached, we've reached a point where there's vaccines. We know what their benefits are, risks, and so forth. I don't want it. Should I have to sign, much in the same way a Jehovah's Witness has to sign, a document that says, I refuse this, and if I get sick with COVID-19, I refuse the vaccine, but if I get sick with COVID-19, then I will, uh, uh, I do not want, or I, I waive my rights to any extraordinary measures. We'll say something more than just, uh, some supplemental oxygen for three or four days in the hospital or something like that because we're going to take care of it. But there's not going to be, I'm on the ventilator for four or five days, then I'm going to go to ECMO, I'm going to be in the ICU, I'm going to be occupying the space, I'm going to accept my fate. Should that be part of this equation? Ramcha? I think so, yes, because you're a grown-up. If you're above 18, you have the right to make your own decisions. You're legally saying that, yes, I am not going to take the vaccine, and if anything happens, let me go. Mm -hmm. I think you're an adult. Because we do that with Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, and that's okay. As long as you have your own written, uh, you're writing your own destiny on a paper. You're writing a legal document stating that. We are fine with that. Mm -hmm. But they'd have to sign that before that as they when they refuse the vaccine so matt should there be mandates and if you refuse to get the vaccine then you have to agree to essentially suffer the consequences if you get sick with covid Mm, that i would say not necessary probably if they're not saying that okay you know we are refusing it but they're not refusing the actual treatment then yes there's a little variance here, but if they're refusing the treatment and the vaccine, that's where we're like, okay, you're no, an adult. No, if you refuse the vaccine, uh-huh. then why should you not have to suffer the consequences of your decision? If that's you're a Jehovah's true. Witness and you refuse blood, eventually you your hemoglobin gets low enough, yeah. you're probably not going to be able to make much in the way of a decision, and you might even have changed your mind at that point in time, yeah. but you're not going to be able to communicate it. So Matt, have you have you had to, and you may have too when you were a student. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Have you had to watch somebody die from anemia, uh, you know, because they were bleeding postoperatively? That was Jehovah's Witness in your practice. A- absolutely. Yeah. So you know, and that's and, and not acutely, not acutely, but right. uh, you know, but you you know, it's end or end organ, end, end organ perfusion lacks, and they end up dying from. Uh, multi-organ failure just from a lack of oxygen delivery. Right, exactly. But, and I've watched that too. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not. No. But, um, but you know, they on. have made that decision up front. Mm-hmm. So should it be that if you choose not to be vaccinated and it is available to you, that you have to accept You're the good. consequences of your decision? Matt, what do you think? Once again, a big analogy guy, Joe. I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the script a little bit on this. I I, I for one, Jehovah Witnesses I've seen them change their mind when it comes down to, you know, when they're signing the consent form in front of, you know, everyone, their loved ones, they're leaving, 
And then when they roll them down the hallway, they go, oh, by the way, can I see that consent again? And I, I will consent to blood. Mm -hmm. So so we all know that everybody's everybody changes their opinion. Yeah. Um, everybody will change their opinion when it's when it's down to brass tacks and it's when it's just them. Yeah, but when you get so, when you get infected, it's too late. Yeah. So this so this is what this is what I'm suggesting. I'm not I'm not worried about giving them health care. What I'm worried about giving them is health insurance. So ah. in the yeah. in the so that's that's where the that's where the lever is going to get pulled, is that in the event you don't want to sign the waiver for your health care, no problem. We've got no problem with that. And guess what? It, I think you go one of two ways with it. It's kind of like we have options with healthcare right now. You can have a high deductible, and you have uh, you know very low premiums, or you can have high premiums and you can have a lower deductible. If you want to sign the waiver and says that I'm not taking this, then your health premium should go up accordingly, but your insurance is going to pay for it. Or if you say I'm not going to sign the waiver, let your insurance stay the same, but your insurance is not covering COVID-related uh, COVID-related costs. That's very. That's a very that that that's is a very, very interesting uh, thought. Now I will tell you that we have had a not insignificant number of unresourced patients that we have thrown the kitchen sink at, and no one will ever pay that bill. And it's yeah. it then and, and I mean any one of those patients has been in the millions of dollars. Yeah. Even some patients who have been insured, mm -hmm. their bills are and and didn't survive but we have created a, a whole class of medically bankrupt families yeah a absolutely and, and but but once again no one hears about that in the mainstream media no no one talks about that no no now if that narrative gets out and says, wait a minute, insurance companies, and then, of course, insurance companies are always the bad guys, so why not pile on? But, but I'll tell you that the, the same thing can be said, and it, I, I'm not a big fan of how the insurance companies work, but that's defensible in my mind. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. It's no different than a driving record with your car insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understood. And, and, right. And, and I'll take it one step further if you want to take the analogy of car, uh, driving your car. If you hit someone with your vehicle and it's purely an accident and, and you know, it was just an accident, your fault, but if someone gets harmed to it, your insurance usually takes care of it and, you know, you can get, you know, have to cover their expenses and whatever it is. But if you are malicious about what you do, if you're driving recklessly under the influence or what, whatever that is more than just what a happen chance on every day, you're not only liable from a legal standpoint financially, you can be, you can be in, you know, have civil and, you know, and have, you know, criminal against you. That's right. And so there are different levels of, of having the same penalty. There, I should say there are different penalties for say, having the same outcomes depending on your actions. Depending that on your ever, negligence your own, or, or not. You, you, correct, correct. And, and we have that all the time, right? I, 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 can, I can, because of rain and I'm driving 
the current conditions and I accidentally slide through and, and I hit and unfortunately hurt or kill someone, if I'm doing the speed limit or under, they'll give me, you're going too fast for con conditions, but they are not going to throw the book at me. Right. If I am speeding aggressively and not under the influence, I may get reckless driving and there's going to be a more severe penalty. Yes. If I'm under the influence and driving dangerous and recklessly and that happens, I get a, a stronger penalty. Yes. So the same outcome, but because of the level of your negligence or the level of your actions, you get penalized further. Right. Why aren't we, do, why aren't we doing that with the vaccine? I don't know. That's a good question. It's a yeah. provocative thought, and it's almost a third rail, seemingly, for all politicians. Nobody wants to tackle this. Nobody wants to have a really open debate about it. And, and you know, I tend to be biased. I tend to listen more to conservative uh, news channels than I do the more liberal uh, media. But, you know, I'm a little bit aggravated with some programs that I actually like because they keep saying that, uh, that you have such a low chance of dying uh, if you were to get COVID or even really getting sick, which is actually true. It's a low percentage. But man, I'll tell you what, that, 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 that low percentage is an enormous number of people and it has profound impact downstream that no one is taking into consideration, including harming patients who cannot get access because the healthcare system is overwhelmed, taking care of these very, very sick, um, high uh, resource uh, taxing patients. And so it's, it, it's not just your life. You're really affecting a whole lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. John, uh, Matt, thank you so very much. I appreciate you calling in. Uh, we're, we've got a Matt, uh, John, John Ingram wants to call in and ask some stuff, but thank you for taking the time today. I know you've had a lot going on, and uh, as always, I, I'm, I'm indebted to you. So hopefully, as this pandemic draws to a close and uh, we get a chance again to be normal, I, I keep promising you I'm coming back to Nashville, and I'm serious, we're coming. Sounds great, Joe. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed the panel. Matt, thank you so much. Thank can you, you, Matt. Can you call John? It'll take a second? Okay, second's up. That's literal. Mm -hmm. I know he didn't mean it literally. Do you know Matt? You've seen him before. You've seen him on the program, I'm assuming. I think so, yeah. Yeah. He's a good, great guy. Great guy. He's a tremendous, uh, tr tremendous asset to the show. He's the one who does the, the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum the first Wednesday of every month. I might have not seen him then. I still Are you not watching these programs? I do. Ramsha? I do. Mm, Got to schedule you. <laughs> Mrs. Azmat, she needs to be watching every program. Okay. Remember when I first watched you? Yes. I texted you. You did. Yeah. I remember. It was over COVID-19 right. ECMO. That's all we've talked about for 20 months. I know. I'm sick of it, actually. Me too. John, what's going on, man? Hey, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you great. Oh, great. Yeah, great discussion. Um, Matt really gave me 
a lot of comments that are food for thought that I want to expand upon. But you guys also leading up to that before he called in a lot of um, good comments to say. Um, and I jump right into some things because Matt has me. Um, uh, my thoughts are, are, are already laid out with what Matt. You're breaking up, John. You guys hear me okay? Yeah, but now we hear you great. Okay, I took you off speakerphone. Good. So, um, you know, we live in a completely permissive, self-destructive society. You are allowed to eat the worst food and have the worst diet. And when you lead yourself into an illness, we rush to your side and pull out all, all the stops. You're allowed to uh, smoke cigarettes. And when you get heart disease and cancer, we pull out all the stops. When you're an alcoholic or a drug user and you, and you lead yourself into self-demise, you go into the hospital, we pull out all the stops. If you're a motorcycle rider and you get in an accident and we rush to your side with a helicopter and everything else, we pull out all the stops. Same thing with skydiving or even riding in the back of a pickup truck. People do things all the time in this country that are 100% permissible. And the healthcare system doesn't say, uh, well, we're not going to take care of you because you didn't, you didn't eat healthy or you didn't go to the gym mm -hmm. or all these other things that I said. So here's the difference with this vaccine. They're trying to say, well, you must have it. Well, first of all, you don't have to have the flu vaccine in, if you work in the hospital, and they'll put a little sticker on your badge and make you wear a mask everywhere. But uh, they make your life more miserable, so you might as well get the flu vaccine. But here's the difference with this vaccine on both sides of the fence. This is the only vaccine that had to be rushed through the research so quickly because we didn't have the luxury of a five or ten year research to see what the long-term negative effects are. So we don't know what, what's going to happen to any of us, if anything, five or ten years down the road. And I'll give you a good example. Matt was, use, Matt was using some good um, uh, examples. Remember where all the, uh, when the World Trade Center towers fell and they were laying there uh, smoldering for months at a time and you had workers go there and try to, you know, rescue people and remove the debris and there was a smoldering burning that was going on for months. Nobody thought too much about it, but we find out years and years later that now these people have a horrible uh, uh, disease because of the people that, because of the breathing those fumes in every day. Same thing with the vaccine. We don't know what's going to happen to everybody taking this vaccine 10, 10 or 20 years down the road, but we don't have the luxury to wait that long either. So I can see why people might hesitate to take it. It's that no long-term data whatsoever. However, the difference between you or an individual eating a bad diet, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, or taking drugs, or riding a motorcycle, there's no contagion with those behaviors. You're causing uh, your self-harm only to yourself, okay? Um, when you don't take the vaccine and you get COVID, that is not true. You are caused, maybe cause harm to yourself, but the invisible spread of those around you that you are now maybe infected and put at risk is the difference between self-destructive behaviors like alcoholism, smoking drugs, and so on. Mm -hmm. You so, now are putting those around you at risk. That's mm -hmm. the difference. So, so let me 
let me be, you know, of course, you know me, I always want to try to take the controversial or the opposing view. Um, so you said that the, the, the vaccine was rushed through, and that's true. Yeah, that was true. But we've been making vaccine for centuries. That's not new. Okay, so vaccine, vaccines, they didn't just learn how to make a vaccine. So I feel like that's a bit, I feel like that's a bit of a red herring potentially because, again, it's the same technology. It's just simply the message that had to be put in it. Um, but it's probably not a whole lot different from the flu vaccine or many other vaccines that we take. Uh, and will some people be harmed from it? Certainly. I think there's no question about it. There will be some that are harmed from the vaccine. But I think that that number is so incredibly disproportionately small in comparison to the number of people that it will benefit, uh, that it is absolutely societally worth that risk. Now, requiring it, mandating it, telling the government, telling companies that you must, if you're 100 employees or more, you must mandate this. You don't have a choice in the matter. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure exactly how I do feel about that. But I do know that George Washington required um, the Continental Army in Valley Forge. This is going back 1776 time. Um, I don't know the exact, I know, you know the exact date that that, this event occurred, but it was in that area, um, required that the entire Continental Army be inoculated with cowpox to immunize them against smallpox. So, you know, how many people at that point in time said, I, I don't want that, but they didn't really have much of a choice. So, you know, I don't know. I think we've been doing vaccines for, yeah. for a long time. And uh, we've eradicated many, many diseases because of vaccines. Yeah. And I think not every vaccine had a five or 10 year track record. Polio is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly how long it was, but it wasn't that long from the time it became known this works to the time it got given to everybody in the country. And I just well, have a hard time believing that you know, that it's very difficult for me to believe that the only people that will be left when we're all gone are those that have been unvaccinated because it was a big trick and they wanted to kill all of humanity. I, I just find that hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah, no, you don't know the, uh, the long-term side effects. No, the average, the average vaccine is researched and studied for a 10-year period, and the vast majority of them fail and never become a vaccine because they find out that A, it really doesn't give you immunity, or B, it has tremendous side effects. That's why there's many, many coronaviruses. Coronavirus is a family of viruses. It's a whole family of viruses, right? And so they've never been able to come up with a vaccine for any of them because when they research it for a decade or so, they find out they don't work. But we didn't have the luxury with this. But fortunately, we are a little bit of an advanced society with vaccines, and you're right about the fact that we hopefully have uh, mimic a technology that we've been able to use before with other vaccines, and hopefully uh, it does give us protection, and hopefully there's no long-term effects. 
because like you said, they can mimic what we've done in the past. Sure. And so you can argue this very easily both ways. So now here's my, my opinion on mandating. We as a health providers, we don't take the same oath as physicians, but that oath being first cause no harm. We as, as and so my opinion is we should all at least uh, think that way. If you're going to work in, in healthcare and people come to you to get better, they shouldn't get sick or more ill because of our, of our behaviors. They come to us as a refuge. So for healthcare workers, it probably should be mandated. And if you don't want to work in healthcare, then you can find maybe something else to do. Now, outside of healthcare, for the average person on the construction site or whatever, and somebody says you must have uh, this vaccine, otherwise you can't work, what other example in society? Now, you're talking about the military, but the military is government-issued people. You belong to the government, especially back then. So you do what the government says. Or you don't, or you don't, or you don't be part of the military, but the the but the average person working at the average job, should they have a gun to their head that says you must take this vaccine, um, and, or or you cannot work or be fired? We well, don't have any other we don't have any other mandate like that right. uh, that I know of with well, flu or anything else. It's well, optional. Well, let me ask you this question, and this is the you know this I think this is this is a serious question. Notwithstanding my experience and Ramsh's experience, what is your experience at work? Now you've also you you're at a big center that does a tremendous amount of ECMO. You have traveled around the country and you have been other places that are doing a lot of ECMO. How many of those patients that you have taken care of since the start of this pandemic, um, once the vaccine has been available? So so. So not in the beginning, but since the vaccine became available and was widely distributed, how many patients have you had on ECMO that were vaccinated? In my, in my travels, which recently I went to four states last month, I have experienced one person who was on ECMO who was actually a physician, uh, 63 years old, uh, vaccinated on ECMO. but. You're talking about somebody like me who's probably seen three or four hundred ECMO COVID patients. Right. And I only know of one, and none at our institution that I know of. So this is where, it, for me, it becomes a bit of a sticky wicket. Yes, mm -hmm. you have, as an individual working a construction site, every right in the world to not be vaccinated. And I hear all the time, well, if you're, the other people are vaccinated, what difference does it make? Well, vaccines, though good, require you to have an immune response. What if you have some kind of immunocompromise where the vaccine doesn't necessarily work for you? What if you get a vaccine, the vaccine and that particular lot, if you remember, there was a pharmacist who deliberately destroyed the vaccines, leaving them out, but was still giving them to people. They were arrested and they were charged, but... People got vaccinated with a basically a, a ruined uh, uh, vaccine. And so if you're one of those people believing that you are protected, whether it be because your own physiology doesn't develop a significant enough immune response to the vaccine or the lot you were given wasn't as good or high quality as it needed to be, why should you suffer the consequences 
of being exposed to somebody else who is not vaccinated, which is much more high, much more likely to be able to transmit the disease, notwithstanding natural immunity and all of that. If you've had it before, is natural immunity and, and vaccine immunity equal? Is one better than the other? I mean, all of that I know gets very muddy with all of this. But should people have the right to roll the dice, not be vaccinated, and potentially infect a vaccinated person, not because they didn't do the right thing or the vaccines don't work, it didn't work for them. Where's the, where is, what is right, what is fair, what is just? Well, this is why I, I opened this, the comment with that we live in a very uh, permissive, self-destructive society. You can drink, do drugs, you can do dangerous behaviors, but they do not infect other people. In this particular case, when you choose not to get vaccinated and then you get the virus and you don't even know it for the first 72 hours while you're spreading it, you are now risking, uh, putting at risk other people around you. So your self-destructive choice doesn't just self-destruct you, it affects other people. So this is why we have such a, you know, a dilemma with, uh, with this particular thing. Now, I do know someone who is immunocompromised. I think it was a, a birth, um, uh, a thing at birth. As an adult, got seven vaccinations, and after each one, tested themselves and did not have antibodies. Mm -hmm. Seven different vaccinations, and finally did get some antibodies, didn't last very long, like three months. So you have all kinds of exceptions to the rule. This is why a goal of a complete one swoop mandate that every person, the minute you say every person, you've automatically led yourself into a complete uh, demise of your rule because there is always exceptions to every, everything, you know? And so you have to say, we live in an imperfect society. There's gonna be imperfections with everything. Like you were just saying, some vaccines didn't work for very well for people. Some maybe were in the vial too long, but they were injected anyway. People didn't have the, we live in an imperfect society. So you have to make an exception for someone who for one reason or another, you're gonna say, well, these are gonna be allowed exceptions that you don't have to take the, uh, the, the vaccine because it's, if, if it's religious, is that good enough or not? I'm not smart enough to make that judgment, but there has to be exceptions to the rule of all rules, right? And so, um, this is where, you know, I want to talk about another, another difference, too, about, uh, if you don't mind, uh, two things. The, the, the slide you had about the hero, about what a, what a hero is. Yeah. You made a very good slide and a very good point, but, but the one thing that overridingly uh, needs to be said, in my opinion, was when someone says so-and-so is my hero, that's not a definition. That's your opinion. In mm -hmm. other words... A lot of people are raised by wonderful parents, and they say in later in life, you know, my father or my mother, they're my hero. Well, that's that person's, you know, feeling and opinion about that person. So to call someone a hero, in my view, is largely your opinion of how you view that person. So if some people want to call a firefighter doing his regular job a hero, that's their, that's their opinion, and they're, they're accurate. Someone else may say, well, that's not a hero because they're doing their job. You know, um, the, I'll talk to you. Uh, so, so to me, the, 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 the linking a black and white definition of the word hero is very difficult because it's, 
largely an opinionated, um, a personal opinion as to whether or not, you know, what is a hero. Some people say, you know, sports heroes are, are a hero. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a word that, that is, unfortunately, should be a lot more sacred in our vocabulary and has become very um, overused and sometimes loses its meaning. So Well, I think so, too. I think, I think we do use it in a cavalier way. And, uh, mm -hmm. and actually, I believe all firefighters um, are, are, are heroic in the mm -hmm. just in the wanting to do the job that they do thank god they want to thank god mm -hmm. that you know they were willing they sacrificed their lives let's say on 9/11 or the police officers or mm -hmm. you know medical professionals nurses uh perfusionists physicians you name it i mean uh, those of us in the very beginning had no idea what was going on astronauts i mean for us to but they love what they do and I don't really, I think that it is overused um, that, you know, we, 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 we just, we say what somebody does is heroic. But what's really heroic to me would be a normal, everyday citizen, Ramsha. I'm going to use you as an example. You're driving along, you're crossing a bridge. You see um, uh, somebody in distress in the water for some reason uh, that, that, that you don't know the reason why you're not a great swimmer and you jump in the water and you attempt whether you do or don't save that person's life or you do and don't survive the event yourself those are decisions made in a split moment from somebody who happenstance alone put them in that circumstance to make a decision that could risk their life and limb or something else, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. It doesn't have to be life and limb. You could use a lot of different examples. I think that's right, a more of a hero in that moment. They, it was extreme courage. Um, but I think that to say that, and I think where I was going with that was because when you have someone who is working in a community and I'll just use ours as an example. And they say, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore, whether it be a perfusionist, whether it be a nurse, I don't care who it was. I'm not going to do this anymore here for this amount of money. I can go do the same thing over there and make all that money. And they leave. That is a lack of, of fidelity to your community that I find distasteful. And I don't believe people like that deserve the term a healthcare hero because, you know, I think you have to, at some point, when something like this happens, unless you're going because there's where the greatest need is, that's a different situation. When you're doing it because I can go make all that money, then why you're doing it and what you're doing um, become very, very, very cloudy for me. Yeah. That's my well, view. I, I wanted to comment on that too, that one line. Hold on. There was a one line in that slide that you said you did not consider a hero someone who left to travel for a, for a, for a greater amount of money and therefore left a need on the position that they left, right? Was that yeah. one of the... Yeah, well, the thing is, but they're filling a need somewhere else. I would disagree with, if you have a nurse 
who's working in COVID unit at our hospital and they get an opportunity to work at a COVID unit, let's say for example in New York, it was horrific back in the early day, it was bad here, but nothing like that. They took a huge pay raise and went and left, yes, they left the hole here, but they filled it the same hole somewhere else. So did they really do anything egregious? I don't, I don't think so. It was, it was something that they did, you know, they did, they filled the hole somewhere else. Nothing well, no, so, I, I don't necessarily, you know, of course, they were, they were, they were lured. I mean, we can take right. this, we can take this down as many rabbit holes as you want. And I'm not saying I have, you know, that I believe necessarily one or the other. I want to be provocative and I want people to think about things like this. So, you know, I mean, I may have my own feelings about it, but I think that facilities and organizations that have been allowed to flourish by, um, attracting people like that to send them someplace else to make that kind of money, and that's the attraction, are doing a disservice to our overall healthcare communities. So, you know, I mean, and that, that is how I feel. I mean, I do feel that way. Uh, but, you know, is it the fault of any one person or is it the system that enabled that to happen? Because then they leave, you're losing a quality nurse who may have, or perfusionist that has familiarity and experience where they are to go someplace else, and then they have to hire travelers to come in that may not have that, certainly aren't going to have the same familiarity, certainly, you know, in many cases don't have the same experience. So now you're taking experienced people away from a place that desperately needs them and backfilling it with people at a much higher cost that don't have that same experience or ability. And that is not what you do when you are part of a community. And, my, and that's you're, my view. You're seeing a collision of a healthcare crisis with the financial, uh, fin with the financial and, and opportunity of, of a free market collide. You're mm -hmm. seeing the, a free market system of, 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 of supply and demand collide with the health, a healthcare crisis. And that's yes. why, you know, you're seeing that. So, I mean, I, I guess... The free society that we live in uh, is is going to have those collisions in a, in a crisis situation at times. I wanted to talk about family members dying alone that we've allowed to have happen. If you if you don't mind, uh, sure. A change this will be the last though. So we uh, after this we're done. Okay. Well, I can hang up anytime. No, go ahead. <laughs> so you know, from the from day one, right? The big thing was we have to have PPE. We have the best PPE, and within a fairly short period of time. Manufacturers were ramped up, and we got all the PPE that we needed so we could be locked in a room for 12 hours with a COVID patient. If you recall, the early nurses who took on that were just, in my opinion, those were heroes. As perfusionists, I never had to be locked in a room for 12 hours uh, on a shift with a COVID patient in the room by all, all you know, just, just you know, in, in that environment, not knowing how dangerous this virus was. But nurses did that, and they were covered in PPE, but yet. You know, and, and they were protected, and they got, and they were safe. And as you were saying, remarkably few got COVID. In fact, I don't know anybody that got COVID from the hospital. All the nurses and healthcare workers I know got COVID from outside the hospital. But at any rate, why were we letting, as a society, where did we come down on the fact that we are going to let people die alone? You, you mean to tell me we can't allow a family member or two to come into the room for one hour or two hours, maybe not just when they die, but every day, and give them the exact same PPE that you're telling us is safe for us to wear locked in that room for 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. 
Why could we not have done that? And why don't we do that? I find that grossly unacceptable well, we've as a changed. society. Here we have changed tremendously well, now, in that yeah, regard. Yeah, but it took a long time. But I do find that time. I did find that to be um, a little disturbing, inhumane yeah, in some is. ways. Yeah. Yes, I think insensitive. Maybe maybe it inhumane strong. I'll say I think that it was uh, uh, insensitive. Yeah. I want to before we do the next thing because John, I need you to do one last thing for me. I want to say S Nadine sends, and this is from where? Twitter or Facebook? Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I find it interesting how many healthcare professionals survived without even an infection of COVID, though many mm -hmm. did get it. Um, I was an EMT at the beginning of the pandemic, later working in the OR and ICU at the height of the pandemic. He received, I received the vaccines in late, and it could be a she, I don't know, in late uh, January and early February, have traveled and still no infection. As far as how difficult it is to treat, comparing it to HIV is chilling. What a curious virus indeed. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't know how I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to it so much it wasn't even funny. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know we were, I wasn't locked in a room. I was in a unit with 16 ECMOs on 16 COVID patients in one unit as the only perfusionist. Um, and I was, there were several times I had to just go in the room with no PPE because the circuit that decided, you know, started to get chatter or the flow went down. And you don't have time. Yeah, you don't. You don't have time to, to yeah. do anything. You have to get in there or the patient's not going to survive. I don't know how I didn't get it. But I will tell you this. And then, John, I need you to tell about the ball caps and stuff because we're going to spin the wheel for Ramsha for her first appearance. Um, just very quickly, I got the first dose of the vaccine in December of last year. I got the um, second dose in early January, um, and uh, and then I got the booster, I did the Pfizer, and I got the booster in my left arm, and I got the flu vaccine, the quadrivalent in my right arm, and a TB test in my right forearm, all at the exact same time. And I don't know why people say the vaccine's not safe. It's, I seem perfectly healthy, except after the booster, I keep hearing this, there's a phone ringing in my head. It's been ringing forever. And every once in a while, somebody answers it and says CIA. But I think I'm fine. <laughs> I think I'm fine. Okay, we're going to spin the wheel for Ramsha. So, Ramsha, I'm going to hit the button. No, you're going to hit the button yourself. So, spin the wheel. Tap the button. And, John, you can tell about this. Yeah, Alan Kleem, a friend of mine who got in touch with you guys, Joe, there, and made these great logo shirts and hats and, and things uh, so we could have uh, a great spin wheel here. Yeah, she got show. it There's in a t-shirt. Okay, so go pick your t-shirt out. Okay. You get uh, camo, red, black, whichever you prefer. And you can stand in front of the camera. They'll, 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 they'll pick you up. Pick Can't up. see her, huh? They're gonna pick me up. No, they'll they'll they'll, they'll no they'll they'll pick you up on the camera. Oh, okay. Camera two. So there's the. There you go. Still can't see her. Oh, there it is. <laughs> can't see Ram. So there she is. Perfusion. <gasps> Look at that. We give your heart a rest. Is that not cool? That's very. Cool. You like the red one? I love it. All right, Ramsha gets the red one. Thank you very much. Okay. This was a great program. I want to thank everybody, and uh, we will see you in two weeks.
for the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum, the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club, and the John Ingram Knowledge Nuggets. Thank you all, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.